This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel, Brotherless Night. I can't believe this has never come up on our show before, but um, would you consider yourself to be a romantic person? I feel like, uh, you know... For someone who wrote a debut novel called Love Marriage, no, I guess I wouldn't. But what do people even consider? I know, like it's it's surprising, counterintuitive. But but what do people even consider romantic at this point? Are we still on rose petals and Fabio sweeping us away to a beach cottage in Spain? Do you do you consider yourself a romantic? You've written here in this script that I'm supposed to say who's Fabio, but I know exactly who Fabio is. I don't know why you ah, think the that truth I wouldn't comes know out. Who, who Fabio is. <laughs> Very famous person. Uh, I don't know if I, I would consider myself more uh, nostalgic or uh, like romantic about time. You know, I don't know if I'm a romantic, like you, you have to ask Gail if she thinks that I'm a romantic person. Like I don't I'm not a huge fan of Valentine's Day, for instance, which I feel like is a very commercial ha- holiday and not very romantic, actually. But I'm very romantic about like taking a trip with the kids to go to a place that we haven't been before, you know, I mean, I, I have, speaking of those, I, I haven't been to Spain, but you know, I, when I think about going to the South of France with the kids, which we've done a couple of times, that feels romantic. Yeah. I think, you know, that definitely qualifies as a romantic destination, but I have to confess that my own tastes are probably a little nerdier. So true story, a few years ago, maybe several years ago, actually, I was mooning over some guy to my friends and I said, a line that I shall never live down but you guys, he's such a good writer. It's <laughs> always, well, we all know what great romantic partners writers make. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the book we're discussing today was right up my alley. It starts off in a highly competitive writer's room for a late night comedy show in New York, which is the perfect setting for romance. I'm telling you, I swooned. And even better, I laughed. And you're talking, of course, about romantic comedy, our friend Curtis Sittenfeld's brand new novel, and she's here to discuss it with us. Um, Curtis is the best-selling author of six novels. Sugi's showing this new book on YouTube. Uh, we were just we we're getting our numbers up. Um, her book has been selected by the New York Times. Her books have been selected by the New York Times, Time, Entertainment Weekly, and Weekly, and People for their ten best books of the year lists. Her short stories have appeared in the New Yorker, the Washington Post. Esquire and in Best American Short Stories, of which she was the 2020 guest editor. And I have no idea why this isn't her standard bio, but she's also the, in her standard bio, but she's also the first and only guest host of this show. We're thrilled to have her back in the guest 
hot seat to talk about her new novel, Romantic Comedy. Curtis, great to have you with us again. Great to be back. I'll, I'll adjust my bio immediately following this discussion. <laughs> it's crucial. Um, so your book, which I love, as you know, um, upends a lot of conventions of the romantic comedy genre, starting with its premise. So uh, just a little context for our listeners. The heroine of romantic comedy, Sally Mills, is a writer for a late night TV show called The Night Owls, which is kind of a proxy for Saturday Night Live. And as the novel starts, Sally is kind of annoyed that her friend and colleague Danny Horst uh, is engaged to a gorgeous movie star he met when she was guest hosting, when the movie star was guest hosting. And Danny's kind of a schlub. Um, and I think that that's actually Sally's word, too. And Sally writes a sketch for the show about what she calls the Danny Horst rule, which is that quote, men at the night owls date above their station, but women never do. And then just as Sally is writing this sketch, she falls for a new guest host who is a dreamboat pop star. And it seems like he might be interested back. So a lot of people have speculated that you got to Danny Horst from the real life SNL cast member and comedian Pete Davidson, who has dated a lot of famous women. Um, is that right? And, and how did you end up a step past that flipping the gender dynamics? So, okay, I, I will go back a little bit and say I was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live with my family early in the pandemic, and I thought to myself, someone should write a screenplay with essentially the premise as you just described it, like a woman for a writer, like a show for a show like this, you know, writes a sketch making fun of, of her colleagues dating super famous, gorgeous, successful um celebrities female celebrities on the show but how it doesn't seem like it would happen with the ordinary female writer talented but ordinary female writer and a smoking hot male celebrity and then you know there's a host that week that that she has chemistry with and then a few months passed and I thought oh maybe um that screenplay that someone should write maybe should be a novel and maybe that someone should be me. Um, so certainly I was inspired by SNL and certainly Pete Davidson um, is an example of this pattern. I mean, I don't think Pete Davidson is a character in my book. And also <laughs> I have a lot, we could just actually talk about Pete Davidson the entire time. <laughs> okay. I want to say, I really, I really like him. I think he seems really sweet and charismatic and I don't, I think that like, if I were Kim Kardashian or Ariana Grande, I'd be delighted to, to date him. Like, I don't, I think that there's, there's some twists and turns in the novel, but I a hundred percent don't feel like I wanted to write a novel making fun of Pete Davidson. And I don't think that's what I did. But anyway, so, so well, yeah. No one doesn't seem very much like Pete Davidson to well, me and Danny, anyway. And Danny, Danny Horst is not, is not. I think Danny Horst is very clearly not Pete Davidson. It's I more mean, like the situation. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, like it would be sort of disingenuous to pretend like, the, you know, like like it's almost like this conversation or this this novel is sort of a conversation about this moment in pop culture. But, you know, if you want to if you want to know about Pete Davidson, it's like listen to him on Mark Maron's podcast or you like listen to him be interviewed or whatever. It's not this is not like a window window into Pete Davidson, although something that I actually find really hilarious is I don't know if you two have found this as novelists. I suspect you have that whatever the topic is that you write about 
you become a sort of magnet for people sharing their opinions or experiences related to that topic. So, you know, I wrote eligible and people would sort of talk to me about Jane Austen or about Pride and Prejudice. Or I wrote American Wife and people would talk to me about their their feelings or their experiences that had to do with, you know, Laura Bush or politics in general. And now having written romantic comedy, I'm like a magnet for typically it's like women in their probably 30s or 40s expressing to me whether they would or wouldn't like to be romantically involved with PD. And there's a lot of like people kind of being like, I don't see it. And then, and then people being like, Oh, I definitely see it. Well, I was, I wanted, I was thinking about, are, are there other professions for which the Danny horse rule would apply? I was trying to think like, I, I have a friend who, um, I, one of my college roommates is a surgeon in like, tall, good-looking surgeon in San Francisco. Never had any problem dating people, but he always dated he always dated nurses, right? Which is the cliche for doctors to do. That's not the same thing that we're talking about, right? He would have to date like an actress, right? Well, so I think one part of the the Danny Horst rule, which of course I don't think it's really an ironclad rule. It's like a, you know, a, a pattern or a phenomenon is that the women are actually at the top of their professional game. Like they're kind of at the top of their game in all ways. They're very attractive. They're very successful. They're very good at what they do. They're very famous. And so that's like a little bit different from other, I mean, cause you know, obviously there's a stereotype of like maybe men who are very successful professionally or in business often having perhaps very, attractive wives but it's okay. interesting because the, and the other thing i mean anytime you speak maybe general, lawyers <laughs> well i don't i think i think that the phenomenon of like essentially thinking okay that that man is and obviously we're talking about heterosexual couples here too i mean there's i I'm, it would be interesting to think about it in terms of like the queer community too and what variations exist but um i think that with like this, this idea of like that guy is dating up, I actually think is pretty common outside the celebrity world. But that, that phenomenon of that woman is dating up, I think is less common. Like if you think anecdotally of people, you know, but then again, it gets really subjective and like maybe, by the way, this is like the least <laughs> literary episode ever. Of like, um, I mean, I don't know, like, it's, it is interesting to think about. Let's all make a list of everyone we know in common. <laughs> say, say if we... No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Say if we think they're dating up or down. Well, I mean, we say that everything you see on, on your social media feed or in the evening news, and actually, this is a lot of what actually is on our social media feeds and in the evening news. It's like, you know, gossiping and, and imagining the lives of uh, famous people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. I was thinking as I was reading about this about, so like when I was younger, I was a pretty serious musician and I was often in jazz bands and I was often the only woman. And my brother was also a jazz musician and also played the saxophone. And you could see, like, it was like we were running a controlled experiment about how people would react to like someone who was pretty good at something that like in a sort of cliched way was sexy. Um, and so like the phenomenon that you're talking about, like, and 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 I think your surgeon, your surgeon, your surgeon friend is the actress. 
your surgeon friend is the actress in this situation. Your surgeon friend is the celebrity. Wait, I need um, to, I need to go back to I want I want to know Sugi for you and your brother what were the differing reactions? I mean, to me there was like no reaction at least that I'm aware of. Um Oh, and... you mean like almost like people would be like, "Oh, it's it's sexy that he does that." And people would not think it was sexy that you did it. Exactly. Interesting. Totally interesting. And I mean, I just think like like the notion of even just like a like a male musician um I don't know, like there's certain instruments, right, that like historically women don't play. And then I don't know, then there's sort of like ways that that people are attracted to Anyway, like like stereotypes of, of what kind of celebrity status in the musician world um, is a, is attached to certain instruments. And then, like, I don't know, I think Whitney's right about like doctors or I remember living in New York and going to like a business school gathering and realizing that many people were there for like basically dating mingling. And it was all dudes from the business school and then a lot of women who were in uh, in professions like teaching and nursing. Um, oh, so I think you're right that it, it exists so much outside of the celebrity world. And so. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading was that, you know, of course, your previous novel was Rodham, um, which was also so fascinating. And you wrote in that book about Hillary Clinton's sex life. And there was like some backlash and conversation about how you did that. And you said that you were reclaiming sexual like reclaiming this for her or like reclaiming this in her as for her as a character. And I was thinking about how this was maybe also kind of a reclaiming for Sally Mills. What do you think about that? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, like, like sort of her saying, you know, like you, you think I'm a, I mean, sure. I do think, I mean, obviously there's like a kind of, um, pattern or, you know, I don't know if the word is again, phenomenon subculture of like female comedians, I mean, male comedians, too, female comedians who, who sort of talk about sex, you know, very candidly. So it's not, I don't think she's kind of categorically reclaiming it, but maybe for herself as a person, um, who at one point someone says to her, like, yeah, like, like some of, some of the people in the office thought that you were kind of a eunuch, but like, I always thought you had a beating heart, which is obviously not really the kind of observation most of us would want our coworkers (laughs) to make. I mean, I actually think, you're right that there was like a little backlash. I mean, it's hard to kind of quantify such things, but there were, I think on social media, like a few people took screenshots of sex scenes in Rodham. And, and I kind of like rolled my eyes at that because I felt like I was sort of like, do you think I don't understand that you can do that? Like in writing this book, I understand you can do that. I understand that we live, we live in a world where like screenshots exist and social media exists. And like, you can make fun of me for writing those sex scenes. But like, I think the sex scenes serve the novel. And I, it, the funny thing is with romantic comedy, I think a part of me was kind of like felt again, like a little bit irritated by the Rodham sex scene reaction and was like, okay, fine. I'll write a sex scene or several sex scenes that are not that do not feature Bill and Hillary Clinton, and then you'll be fine with them, and, and then you'll you'll think like, oh, okay, those are I'm I'm reading those and I enjoy those, and those those enhance my my reading experience and my understanding of the character, and and then that'll make you understand. This is me thinking this, you know, delusionally, obviously. That'll make you know that it, that the issues with the the Rodham sex scenes were you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the things about another thing that you write about a lot in the book um, is writing, actually, particularly in the first part, um, 
which sort of you know takes us through a production uh, like week, I guess, of of the, yeah. of the show. And Sally has these colleagues uh, at uh, on on her show, you know, that she works with, and and you do a lot of really interesting scenes where, that are about writing. In fact, the first scene where she meets Noah is about them writing a scene. Well, it's not the first scene, but the longest scene that they have together early in the book is about them writing together. Have you ever written about writing or like watching people do writing before like that? Well, so <clears throat> it's funny you should ask. I mean, my my novel eligible the the protagonist my updated you know lizzie bennett is a journalist at a women's magazine so which is again that's not a fiction writer being a a sketch comedy writer is not a fiction writer but i will tell you this feels very relevant a lot of the dynamic of the sketch comedy show and romantic comedy i based on the iowa writers workshop which obviously all three of us attended at different times But everything I read, including I read this, you know, very long, juicy oral history of Saturday Night Live called Live from New York, edited by, I can see it right now, James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. Um, There were so many parallels to Iowa that I then just kind of filled in some of my own. And I don't, we can, we can go down that path or skip it i don't know if that's too inside baseball no but we'd like to have you read from the book actually um uh, uh about some of her working with some of her colleagues at, at night owls um so okay so this is this is sally has learned that she's gonna have a few sketches on it's always sort of competitive to to get to, or or more than that it's guaranteed that they'll be on they have not yet been eliminated and they are in the lineup so they have like sort of a two-thirds chance of making it on air and she's leaving the office at 1 a.m. and she sees um, someone named Elliot who she ended up having a crush on him that went nowhere years ago and they've not been on great terms ever since. I was walking toward the elevators to leave when I heard someone say, hey Sally, when I turned, Elliot, the head writer who was married to the multi-platinum album selling singer named Nicola, was leaning out of his office. I paused. He said, nice lineup on the, on the corkboard. Because he'd been part of the meeting where the first round of sketches had been selected, I said, if you're offering me the opportunity to thank you, I'll hold off till the live show. I didn't point out that I'd never know if he'd argued for or against any of mine. I'll be shocked if at least one doesn't make it to air, Elliot said, which didn't seem particularly encouraging. He added, I just wanted to say, not to touch the third rail, I hope. He paused, and I was reminded that although he had, over time, remade himself into a well-groomed, successful cultural arbiter married to a pop star, he was still fundamentally an awkward writer. And though I myself was no stranger to awkwardness, I wasn't going to help him. You hope, I repeated, that someday you'll be able to let bygones be bygones. If I'd had any acting skills, I'd have said, meaning what? But of course I knew what he was alluding to. Even though he was wrong, I knew. Elliot had started at TNO the year before I had and was legendary for landing what became a wildly popular sketch on his first episode ever. By the time I joined, he seemed like a beloved veteran. In contrast, my first year had been bumpy and confusing. I'd often been too intimidated to even speak. Only two of my sketches had made it on air in the whole season, and I hadn't known if I would be invited back. 
The week in August after my contract had been renewed, a few months before the next season started in October, I'd run into Elliot at the Strand next to a table of novels and translation, and we'd ended up getting coffee and having a surprisingly frank conversation. I had confided all the insecurities I'd been racked with, my total lack of experience in stand-up or improv, the fact that I hadn't attended Harvard, and he'd matter-of-factly said that was all normal, almost everyone felt insecure, even people who had lots of experience with stand-up or improv and people who had gone to Harvard, and his trajectory was more anomalous than mine. TNO liked raw talent, he said. Nigel preferred hiring people for their first TV job because then the show could mold them. Elliot pointed out that I didn't always submit a sketch for the table read and asked if I was writing them and not submitting or not even writing them. The former, I said. He said that I should never be the one to preemptively reject my ideas. I should force other people to. In fact, I should submit a minimum of two sketches each week, even if I didn't think they were in perfect shape. There were so many variables affecting a sketch's outcome, the host, the national moment, Nigel's mood, plus an idea could always be drastically improved in rewrites. Also, Elliot said, I should seek out cast members who'd started around my year, who were as green and hungry as I was, and we should pool our talents and climb the ranks together. Our time might not be now, but if we persisted, it would come. The only way to learn, he said, was by doing it. He didn't put it into these terms, and I'm not even sure if he knew this was what he was saying, but his message was, act like a guy. It was a message that turned out to be invaluable. Thank you so much. I I think, again, here I was thinking of Rodham as I was reading about women acting like men at work to succeed and thinking of my own experiences at work, etc. Um, but Sally from Elliot's rejection of her eventually gets to this mental space from which she writes with this like enormous, admirable feminist freedom. And I wonder if you could just read, there's a, a great paragraph about that just a little bit later on. I began writing about ostensibly female topics, camel toe and wage inequity, polycystic ovary syndrome and Jane Austen, dosy does and trefoils and mammograms and shapewear and dirty dancing, and the so-called likability of female politicians. By October of that year, I'd written my first viral sketch, Nancy Drew and the Disappearing Access to Abortion, in which Henrietta played the amateur detective. By December, I'd written my second, My Girlfriend Never Farts. <laughs> I've never read this out loud. Um, which was a digital short that interspersed men at a bachelor party remarking on how their girlfriends and wives always smelled great, and were hairless, interspersed with shots of the women grunting and sweating as they moved a couch up a staircase. I almost can't read this. It turns out I'm a prude. Who knew? I can just, I can, I can do it in writing, and I can't do it aloud. Do you? Do you need? Do you need someone to finish it for you? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish this paragraph for you. And I will say that I took a certain evil pleasure in putting this in. <laughs> okay. By December, I'd written my second My Girlfriend Never Farts, which was a digital short that interspersed men at a bachelor party remarking on how their girlfriends and wives always smelled great and were hairless, interspersed with shots of the women grunting and sweating as they moved a couch up a staircase, writhing on the toilet with explosive <laughs> diarrhea. <laughs> Now you're making me laugh. 
and giving instructions to an as- as- <laughs> giving instructions to an esthetician who was waxing their butthole. I didn't try to be disgusting for the sake of being disgusting, but I didn't try not to be disgusting. <laughs> that was a career highlight was getting you to say waxing their buttholes for me. <laughs> There's nothing left for me to try to accomplish. Okay, so one time I had a story in the New Yorker um, in 2016, and I went to go record it at the public radio station in St. Louis um, for their, you know, sort of online offering. And there was like a pretty explicit sex scene. And beforehand, I was like making, I was in a very like small room with the sound engineer making chit chat about like our our kids and like school starting again. And then I start reading this like like a few paragraphs about like oral sex between two people who barely know each other. And I started laughing like so hard and it happened like maybe four times. And finally he had to go leave the room and was like, just let me know if you need anything. Wait, was this gender studies? Yes. (laughs) Another good story set in Kansas city. I know that's yeah. Like I, I, that's, that's like for me, the, the trademark of great literature. I know. I mean, it's, it's so, this is so embarrassing that obviously like it's not even that I think it's like so funny. It's that it's so awkward to talk about this stuff, which I, I mean, I don't, I feel like I've just like psychologically revealed myself. But that comes through in a lot of the scenes. I mean, they have to table read all of this humor, right? All of these things and the kinds of sketches that you're talking about are the kinds of things that go on Saturday Night Live, right? So people are having to like have discussions about this together in a room with other people listening and judging it and deciding whether it's funny or not. You have a lot of passages like that, as we mentioned earlier, you mentioned one book that you read about about researching sort of life behind the scenes at, at SNL, Saturday Night Live. But what else did you do? Did you talk to anybody who'd worked on the show? I mean, how was your what was your process? For yes. That? Other than thinking about the Iowa writers working. <laughs> I, I just I just kind of thought back 20 years to my graduate school experience. Um, I interviewed two people who've worked on the show in the in the recent past. I read, in addition to that oral history, I read memoirs by other current and past writers. Um, I listened to tons of podcasts of like, it would be like um, Conan O'Brien interviewing David Spade and then like David Spade (laughs) interviewing Conan O'Brien and then Mark Berbiglia interviewing Bowen Yang. And um, I mentioned Mark Maron already. Um, And then there's actually James Franco, the actor, made a documentary about a week in the life of SNL. And then SNL does its own kind of shorts, like almost teeny tiny five minute documentaries, the wrong word, but whatever they are, like descriptions of how, say, the makeup department works or how they build the sets. And they're they're so interesting and so informative. Um, So, yeah, there was... And and actually, I do um, socially know a comedian. Actually, a co- I have I've I'm so lucky. I'm friends with like a professional musician and a professional comedian, and they both read it almost for like I don't know what I don't know, and to to be like like almost like the question that I couldn't ask as a fact checking question, and more like does anything just smell bad or wrong? That's amazing. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here, and we'll be right back. All of this. I mean, Whitney's referring to the process and referred earlier to that scene where Noah and Sally kind of write something together, which is my personal romantic dream. I was like, this is the hottest scene of all time. <laughs> um, 
And you are a funny writer, but this this is like really another level. Sally is an actual professional comedy writer and we're in her point of view. And I was just thinking about this as like a writing challenge. We see her pitch comedy ideas. She's hilarious in conversation. You spend a fair amount of time describing your imagined episode of The Night Owls down to which sketches are funny enough to make it on the air and which ones get cut, that competitive process you talked about before. So can you talk a little bit about writing jokes for the book and feeling, I don't know, any pressure you might have felt to be funny? So it's this is a, a kind of interesting question because of course I want to let any any reader of the book I want them to have their own experience including of course there are always people who are like I hated it you know I I so so I'll, I have to preface like this I, I feel like almost saying this might shape someone's reading of it but I definitely recognize that I am not a comedian and I'm not a primarily comic writer. And so I think that I actually sometimes do take on, you know, somewhat ambitious or risky writing projects, but I kind of lay out the rules for myself very clearly. No one else knows what these rules are, but I knew that like, I'm not trying to be hilarious in this book. I'm, I'm like, using my abilities as a writer and and I, I can write a scene and I can create characters and I want there to be humor but I had to almost like just like writing eligible I had to kind of say this is an, an homage and I know I'm not Jane Austen I had to say like this is a love letter to SNL I know I'm not Tina Fey and like that kind of took the pressure off and so specifically I I kind of you know because life is so often cringy and absurd and I'll think to myself oh this is like I'll be in a social moment or you know something or like I'll be in the grocery store and I'll think this is like an SNL sketch and so I just thought I need to like write down whenever I have those thoughts I need to write down like what it is that makes me think this is an SNL sketch but I feel like there's much more about this book like like I feel like writing is writing to a pretty significant degree and and I didn't I didn't really think I'm taking this on as a comic project. I think it's a more more an emotional novel with I hope fun and funny moments, but not it's not like like you you wouldn't mistake it for bossy pants or whatever, which is, you know, to me like a magnificent perfect book. Well, that's all well and good, but there are like there's a you wrote a scene where um and look, it, and, and humor in fiction does work differently than it does in like in stand up or plays. You know, I mean, like the funny parts in in that description that you gave or the part where you slip in the middle, you know, like saying like waxing their butthole, you know, in the middle of a paragraph and you leave it there without like doing a lot to signal it, you know, and that, that like and it's there. It's funny, but without like the buildup that a joke has. Right. But um, you do have a scene where uh, uh, Sally and some of her female friends who are writers there are writing a sketch that's called like dog internet searches, right? And you have to yeah. give like about 20 examples of them throwing out ideas for dog internet searches and they have to be good. And they were, I thought, I, I, I thought I, you spent some time trying to like write jokes for that. I thought. It's, it's so funny because I think that that's actually the example in the book where like I, it's the most where I'm giving the material instead of like a, a kind of fleetingly, funny observation I'm almost saying what the jokes are and actually one of my very early readers was like that's just not funny and then other people have pretty consistently been like I love that part so this is the truth of that scene um I mean I knew I wanted to do it 
And then, and I think I'd had that moment. And then um, actually my kids helped me with it. We were sitting in a parking lot stuck. So I like, I literally wrote that. And we kind of were going around the way the characters are going around. And then we, um, like I was literally writing stuff on the back of a receipt. And then, you know, my kids are like, it's this is all a few years ago. So let's say the average age was like 12 or something. Um, and then I think I injected some more R-rated Google searches um, for them after we had collaboratively done it. But I said, I was like, it's a family business. And um, and even I think maybe the scene, my hope is that that scene even has like different sensibilities because my kids and I have different sense of, you know, like the joke that you make is slightly different from the joke that I would make, but they're complimentary. So I, I do like, I mean, I think also anyone who has a dog can probably identify to some extent with that scene. What page is that on? Come on. I'm, I don't want this to be oh. in the thing, but I want to find like, there's one that made, that made me laugh. That was about, they were all sort of like, I, identity ones like you know like big dog with uh, big dog defeats bi- little dog defeats big dog you know or video for that and then there was yeah. one like okay, wait. home it's mortgage page- rates or something like that taco bell chihuahua male or female see that's a good one lassie pra- plastic surgery i also thought that was excellent but then the one that really makes them laugh i don't know if it would have made me laugh but it makes them laugh is refinancing my mortgage which i thought was <laughs> when they react to it i thought I got the joke better than I would have otherwise. It was just interesting. Um, I mean, it's again, it, I think it has to do with like this recognition of, uh, yeah, like, like, I mean, I don't know. It's humor is one of those things where it's like, there's, (laughs) it would be interesting to me, but there's probably like nothing less funny than like deconstructing jokes or like, like it's, it's a very interesting thing when you think about it because writing is deconstructing and being like, why did this work or not work? And, but maybe, maybe reading is like, you know, just not thinking about the construction of the writing as you're reading. Like maybe that's the gift of reading, but it's certainly humor. I mean, a lot of comedians are very meta, but, but maybe if there's something about like, you know, breaking down if something's funny or not funny that, that like seems like it sucks the life force out of it. I mean, I taught a class on humor and gender a while ago, which we might have talked about. And I found that, yeah, like it was there was some of my own resistance to that, my students resistance to that. And then also like some really interesting writing, like Antonia Nelson has this um, amazing essay about the structure of short stories and jokes um, that I love. And I don't know. Oh, I need to read that. Yeah, I would love I will, to read I will that. Send it. my tail normal size. <laughs> Waxing my tail. <laughs> so this scene actually specifically reminded me of one of my all-time favorite comic scenes in a movie, which is in the Steve Martin movie Roxanne, where someone mm-hmm. insults him and calls him Big Nose, and then he stands up and in this like bravura performance insults himself, his own nose, like 40 times in a row. And all of his jokes are better than the guy who has insulted him. And it's just like this, and it's it's a kind of like, I don't know, it's a like like this is a list, right? Like a, a list can yeah, be very yeah. funny. And there are like a lot of, I don't know, I think thinking yeah. about that as like a writing structure and like how that, I felt like when I was teaching the class, a lot of what we talked about was like incongruity. Um, ah, ah, which is like so much of what I found funny here. Um, so of course, humor and joyousness are a huge part of this novel. Um, this is probably one of the laughiest episodes. Um, that I remember taping in a while. And, and Sally says at one point, without question, I had the best job in the world, which is like just a great, I don't know, it's a great to be aligned with a female character who's, who thinks that. 
and it's just hugely fun to read about. And we're living in difficult times. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about happiness and seeking joy and, and pursuing this project during our dark, our dark ages. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's totally why I wrote this novel. So I actually, um, after I wrote Rodham, it was, you know, it came out early in the early months of the pandemic. And, and if somebody said to me, what are you going to write next? I would say, I want to write something short and fun. I started another novel. I worked on it for more than six months. It was not short and also was not fun. I mean, I, I might go back to it. I think it was interesting. And I thought like, I just have to like, 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 I don't know if you both feel this way, but it's like the, the fictional world that you create is the world that you, not only do you live in it for a lot of your work hours, but you have chosen to live in it. Like no one else has made you. Um, and I, I kind of thought, and again, like, so, uh, you know, Sugi, you have like a, a very serious, book that you just read wrote that I love and I think is like beautiful and I'm so glad it exists it's obviously about you know the Sri Lankan civil war so it's like it's not to say I mean like like I this is not I'm not like making um you know recommendations for what anyone else does but I think for myself I just felt like like you know it it had been like a rough time and I felt like this almost felt like a gift I could give myself, like the the way that you might give yourself like a cupcake or something. And, and, and I all, even like, so I like worked on that other novel. And then there was another novel that I feel like I wrote for like three days. And I was like, I'm going to just lose my mind if I try to write this. Like it was also not short and not fun or like not, it was not a light topic. And then I thought if I could like mash together falling in love and crushes and like kissing and you know sexual tension plus sketch comedy like oh my god like like, I'll save myself and and that was the world that I wanted to live in like I just I wanted kind of like light and fun and fizziness and romance well we're the beneficiaries of that so thank you so much for joining us Curtis and listeners don't miss romantic comedy which is out now thank you I'm so proud that I, I believe that I got all three of us to say butthole in one episode. <laughs> That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ryan Reed. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fictionpodcasts. You can find video of our interviews at our own fiction slash non slash fiction podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic area. Happy reading.